All right, welcome back to From Bench to Bedside. Um, I had so much fun last week recording an episode with Dr. Ruben Allergy, as he's known on TikTok, and I also believe Instagram. Um, phenomenal allergist immunologist from the greater Chicagoland area. And we talked about the history of vaccines. We were like barely able to touch on everything. And we recorded over an hour together. Um, there's a lot of history, a lot of interest there. And hopefully, um, you know, we achieved the goal of starting, um, you know, to get people interested in this topic and maybe understanding and hearing about some new history that, that you didn't know had anything to do with vaccines. So um, anyway, I'm back today with um, episode two. And hang on, because like I said in episode one, it's going to be a bumpy ride. I'm still learning how to do this. If you are watching along on um, YouTube or anywhere else, I apologize if I look away from the camera. I'm still working on some like scripting stuff and trying to like get my notes to like play in front of me. Um, but, you know, I find it impossible to do over an hour of, of science and deep dive with all these interesting tidbits. I don't have a few notes in front of me and it kind of helps keep me on track so I don't just like wander off like I do in TikTok and Instagram lives where I am chatting away about whatever comes to mind. Uh, I am perfectly capable of doing that too. But let's stay on course. Today we're going to talk about diabetes. Again, like vaccination, this is a massive, massive topic. And um, really difficult to cover everything in an hour or so. In the show notes, I'm going to have references where you can look up what I'm talking about and um, go from there if you really get interested in these topics. Um, but, you know, diabetes is such a massive disease. It impacts so many people, just under one in 10 people around the globe of known cases. And that's considered to be a massive underestimate. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little bit too. I also have a personal connection to this. Um, I I also have a personal connection to this. Um, about mid thirties, my father developed diabetes, and that was really unusual for someone of his phenotype. He was athletic. He was relatively young. He was really healthy, and um, you know, at that time, there was no inkling that people could develop type one diabetes in middle age. But you can't. You can't. And that's now known. Um, that said, you know, being treated, and he was immediately insulin dependent too. So I have a little bit of a personal connection to it from that. As life would have it, you know, we get brought full circle sometimes. And I didn't intend for this to happen, but I did end up working in a lab studying diabetes and um, doing some work in that area and in autoimmune disease. So that was really interesting to me. It's funny how life works. I didn't really plan it that way, I didn't anticipate it. But hopefully the contributions I had to the science there um, were helpful for others. Um, and let's let's dive in. Let's talk about diabetes. All right. So um, we're going to go over some of the background and some of the ancient history and bench to bedside. This is our podcast here. Um, discoveries and collaborations and transitions all the way up into the modern age. So welcome. All right. Um, so diabetes is a word, Greek word, that means siphon or to pass through. And the Latin word mellitus means sweet. Um, we're put together and we have diabetes mellitus. All right. And this is not to be confused with other types of diabetes. Um, there is something called diabetes insipidus, 
which actually means bland. Um, so bland diabetes, bland siphoning out of, of massive quantities of urine. And this has to do with the pituitary gland causing excessive thirst and um, excretion of large quantities of dilute urine. Um, diabetes mellitus, people get very, very thirsty and explain why that happens. And they are urinating constantly, um, but the urine is sweet. So that is that is the difference. And that is the clue back in history that led people to discover things like, like insulin and how it works. All right. So the gist of diabetes is really that you have too much glucose, too much sugar in your blood, and your body's not able to process it. And all of this links back to a tiny 51 amino acid peptide hormone called insulin. And insulin acts like a key that unlocks the door that lets sugar molecules into your cells. And then it goes through um, cellular respiration and we make ATP and the little engines of our cells, you know, the, the mitochondria or the powerhouse of the cell, you may have heard that, um, that's where ATP is made, um, you know. They, they do their thing, you get energy. We are all walking around, breathing, talking, listening to this podcast because of that. Um, now, it may be counterintuitive that diabetes is kind of a wasting disease because you have too much sugar, you have too many calories circulating. But the problem is you can't really absorb them. Um, if that mechanism, and there's different ways that mechanism works in type 1 and type 2, and I'll go over that. Um, but if that mechanism is broken, if you will, if it's not quite working, then you're not going to get the sugar that your cells need to function into those cells inside, okay? And um, instead, you get really, really thirsty because you have a lot of something in your blood and you need to excrete it. You have excess, okay? Um, the same can happen if you have too much salt in your blood and you get really, really thirsty and your kidneys are like, hey, we've, we've got to get rid of this. We've got too much here. And um, then you excrete it. Um, so that is one of the first things that shows up with diabetes. Um, it can be kind of a wasting-like disease. Some people start to lose weight really fast. Um, they, they feel tired, exhausted, they're thirsty all the time. Um, and the urine is very sweet because they are excreting all of that sugar. All right. So, you know, just if anyone's listening um, for health purposes, you know, your fasting blood sugar should be somewhere between 70 and 100 milligrams per deciliter. Um, if you're walking around and you don't have any problems with, with insulin in your system or responsiveness to insulin, which is type 2, um, type 1, you don't have enough insulin, and we'll go over that, um, you're, you're around 120 milligrams per deciliter, somewhere between, I don't know, 110, 130. You know, it's, it's a reasonably healthy range. And what's fascinating to me is that this is conserved through mammalian species. Um, when I was working in diabetes, we have um, a type of mouse, a mouse strain that develops spontaneous type 1 diabetes. Um, this little little mouse colony goes diabetic, about 80% of them or so do, and we would track their blood sugar nearly identically to the way people track their blood sugar. People prick their finger, they put a little blood smear on a strip that goes into a sensor and gives you your readout of your glucose levels. Same thing, we would poke them on the tail, we'd get a little drop of blood, we'd put it on a strip and a sensor that was used to check human blood sugar, and we would get the same readouts. The healthy ones would be around 120, 
And as they develop diabetes over time, we would watch that blood sugar rate go up and up, and they would get thirsty too. And so this is a really nice animal model. And I'm, I apologize if you're not in animal research, I'll do a little disclaimer shortly after this, but um, you know, this is a really nice model for us to say, okay, this, this little animal starting to develop, develop diabetes, what can we do to slow it down? What can we do to stop it? Is there anything we can do that would translate to humans developing type 1 diabetes? And, um, you know, the evidence is out there that the earlier this is caught, the better for type 1 diabetics. Um, so let's go over some of the numbers. Well, first, let me give you the animal disclaimer. Um, I do talk about animal research in Bench to Bedside. And, um, you know, I, nor I think anyone with half a heart uh, likes doing animal research. We don't love it. You know, um, I have pets. I think animals are amazing. Um, you never want to be doing this unnecessarily. There are many procedures for justification. Um, lots of things that we do to make sure these animals live the happiest, healthiest, pain-free life um, possible. And, um, you know, we do everything to reduce the numbers, to reuse data, to be as thoughtful as you possibly can. And I'm very proud that some of my other work um, is, you know, reducing the, the, the reliance on animals and research. And so that makes me, you know, pretty happy about that. Um, and that is that is the ultimate goal, right? Is to move away from ever having to use animals in research. However, historically, there there were things that just it wasn't possible. It was not possible to get to um, understanding the physiology of health and medicine um, without using animals in research. And so, you know, I hold a big heart of gratitude for those little creatures for helping us and um, some of the, you know, the things we discover in humans get applied back to, to help our pets and our animals too. So, um, you know, that's my disclaimer on that. We will be talking a little bit about animal research here. Um, and the good news is we now have an understanding of this particular disease, so we don't need to do the kind of animal research we used to. All right, so let's go over the number of people that are impacted by diabetes disease around the world. So according to the International Diabetes Federation, in 2021, about 537 million adults aged 20 to 79 are living with diabetes. Um, this is a huge number. It's, it's close to 1 in 10. Um, this is a significant underestimate, and I'll, I will show you a slide on that soon. Um, so this number is predicted to rise, continue to rise, has been rising for the last 10 or 15 years, but um, to about 643 million by 2023 and 783 million by 2045. And they also estimate that about one in two people with diabetes is undiagnosed. And, you know, this happens in places where we don't have um, healthcare infrastructure where people go untreated for a lot of diseases. I recently did probably the most unpopular series on TikTok um, about parasites and how many people around the world are impacted by parasites. And the gist of it all is cook your food, wash your hands, access to clean water. That's it. Um, that would cure so much parasitic disease around the world. Um, but just like other diseases that have high burden in areas where there is not good healthcare infrastructure, not good water infrastructure, diabetes goes undiagnosed often. All right. So this is kind of 
you know, a projection on total numbers of diabetes. Um, but there is a BMJ letter, British Medical Journal letter, that I'm going to pop up on the screen right now, um, this graphic, and it shows that the overall prevalence is probably underdiagnosed by about 200 million. Um, and then the time to developing the numbers that they are citing is probably underestimated by about 12 years. So the prevalence is going up faster than we think, and more people have it than we think. Um, International Diabetes Federation says about 7 million, 6.7 million deaths in 2021 um, were attributed to diabetes. This is one every five seconds or so. And that diabetes costs the United States at least 966 billion in healthcare expenditures. And this is an over 300% increase over the last 15 years. Um, now, it's difficult to overstate this clinical burden of diabetes, all the way from individuals impacted and in these rising rates in different communities, all the way up to you know, major healthcare infrastructure being significantly burdened by this. Um, now, as you may know, there are two different types of diabetes. There is type 1 and there is type 2. Type 1 is called insulin-dependent, okay? It requires insulin for in order for people to function. And type 2 is called insulin-independent, indicating that the mechanism by which type 2 develops is not dependent necessarily on insulin concentration, so the outcome can be really the same for both patients, where they both may be taking insulin to help regulate their blood sugar. All right, so let me go over that for you real quick. I'm going to put a slide up on the screen. Um, hang on one sec. All right. So what you're seeing on the screen here um, is a figure from um, a nature Review, uh, Nature Reviews in Molecular and Cell Biology. It came out in 2012. Um, and just a reminder, these pathways are incredibly complex. Um, but what you're seeing here over on the left-hand side of figure A and B are um, insulin receptors. And insulin is a hormone. It initiates all sorts of action in the cell when it binds the insulin receptor. But in general, when you're talking and thinking about diabetes, one of its major courses of action is to bring the GLUT4 receptor to the surface. Now, remember I said insulin acts like the key to unlock the door that brings sugar into your cells. So the insulin receptor, insulin hits the insulin receptor, that's the key, and it brings vesicles containing something called the GLUT4 receptor. This is like the door where glucose um, to get into your cell to the surface, and then the sugar can be absorbed from your bloodstream into the cells that need it, okay? Um, and this mechanism is disrupted in type 1 diabetics because they don't have enough insulin to unlock that door. And in type 2 diabetics, often it's a very metabolically complex disease, but often it's that they've lost sensitivity to insulin, meaning they don't have enough GLUT4 receptors anymore in some cases. So I even read a paper recently showing that type 2 diabetics can have reduced messenger RNA, messenger ribonucleic acid expression, and that means that your body's going to make less of this GLUT4 receptor um, and, and less mRNA, messenger RNA specifically for GLUT4. Let me clarify that. Um, 
So this, you know, these are things that can happen at the um, kind of cellular control levels um, if you have type 2 diabetes. Um, so type 2 diabetics are the majority of patients. It's about 90% of people, um, anywhere from 90 to 95, depending on the population you're looking at. Type 1, it's about 10%. And type 1 can be diagnosed as young as I've seen two years old. And uh, this was a point of curiosity for me. I wasn't able to find a good answer. So if you have a good answer for me, drop in the comments. I'd love to see it. Um, but I'm very curious if this earlier diagnosis is because we're noticing it sooner or these children are developing more pernicious autoimmune disease. So usually when I first started studying this, diagnosis was around like four or five years old. And now I've heard of diagnosis as early as two years old. Maybe it's more about awareness, but often diagnosis for type 1 diabetics is only occurs when they start to get really thirsty and they start to, to demonstrate the, the symptoms uh, that you would see with um, someone who's lost all their insulin. And it is true that often by the time a child is diagnosed, they've lost 90% of their cells that produce insulin. Let's talk about those cells. Um, so they're called beta islet cells, I-S-L-E-T, and they live in your pancreas, in little bundles, um, along with alpha cells. Um, but what happens in type 1 diabetics is that you have an autoimmune response that's attacking those beta cells, and it kills them off. Um, and then you lose the ability to produce insulin, which is why they are insulin dependent. They have to take injections to always replace it. Um, alpha cells um, also help regulate your blood sugar. They produce glucagon, which tells your liver make more glucose. So if you're fasting, if you haven't had a meal for a while, um, you may have more glucagon in your system, um, injecting you know glucose from your liver, other places of storage into your bloodstream so that you can continue to function. Um, so that's, that's a bit of background. Um, and I hope that all makes sense to you. But um, let's dive into the history of what's going on with diabetes. Um, so who first recorded knowledge of diabetes? We know ancient texts can get lost, knowledge can get lost, but the first written record we have is in the Evers papyrus. Um, and it is among the oldest and most medically important papyrus um, found in ancient Egypt. In 1550 BCE, um, this text was written, and it references earlier texts, too. And it is thought to be the first known um, reference to diabetes because it uses the phrase, it's a medical write-up, and it uses the phrase to eliminate urine with too much asha. A-S-H-A. Asha means plentiful or often. So they were recording a disease where people just urinated too frequently, and, you know, People, before we had access to insulin, they would die from this. They, they would waste away. They couldn't stop drinking water. Um, it was a death sentence at that time. Um, also, on the Indian subcontinent, um, there is reference to diabetes, um, urine, in, um, urine in excess that had a sweet taste to it, was referenced in Sanskrit texts from the 5th and 6th century BCE. Um, Chinese, ancient Chinese medical texts, you can find um, references as far back as 475 BCE, and also medical texts throughout the 
the medieval Islamic world, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Byzantine Empire were all writing about this disease. So this disease it really has a long history around the world. This is not just something that randomly showed up with our Western diets and more sedentary lifestyle. Um, diabetes has been known into antiquity, deep into antiquity. Um, so all these descriptions um, have, have been floating around the ancient medical world for a very long time. But um, the first person to coin the word diabetes that we still use today um, came in the second century AD. Um, that was Atreus, um, a Greek physician who provided a really accurate description of diabetes. And, um, you know, he wrote eight different treats on diseases, which are still around today and are considered to be among the most important Greco-Roman medical works ever written. So he was the first one who said diabetes, siphon, too much urine. And that was a Greek word. Um, and remember, diabetes mellitus is both Greek and Latin. Mellitus being Latin. And that came from a physician in the 17th century. So we're going to fast forward through time here. Um, Thomas Willis. So he added mellitus to the disease, um, describing that there's an extremely sweet taste and smell to this urine. Um, so he put that down in some medical texts. And he kind of kind of suggested alluded to that the sweetness um, was something coming from the blood. A lot of people thought it had to do with kidneys or other organ systems being dysfunctional. Um, and then about a century later, someone named Matthew Dobson um, showed that this sweetness was really because of sugar in the blood. The blood had high sugar content, urine had high sugar content. It was not due to the kidneys malfunctioning. Um, all right, now if we fast forward a little further, um, we're going to talk about how it was discovered the pancreas was involved. Um, so there were uh, two scientists, Marion and Mikowski, in Austria. In 1889, they performed their very famous experiment um, establishing that the pancreas was um, malfunctions of the pancreas were the cause of diabetes. So, first, what they did was they removed a dog's pancreas, and they showed that the dog developed severe and fatal diabetes. When they replaced, when they transplanted back a pancreas into a dog that had their pancreas removed, the dog recovered. So this was the, the seminal experiment that said, yep, this, this excess sugar in the blood that's killing people, they're wasting away before our eyes, um, they can't stop drinking water, this is due to something going on in the pancreas. Um, so that gave people some clues as to what was happening. All right, so what was going on with the pancreas? And it was discovered by Dr. Frederick Banting, a Canadian surgeon, and his medical student, Charles Best. It was first isolated July 27, 1921. So, you know, over 100 years ago was the first isolation of insulin. And then in 1922, not too much longer, January 11, 1922, they were able to administer insulin that they had isolated from the pancreases of cattle in slaughterhouses to 14-year-old Leonard Thompson, who became the first ever person to receive an insulin injection. Now, this first injection um, caused an allergic reaction. These proteins, um, you know, 1920s, they're doing their best to refine them, purify them properly. There can be differences in mammalian um, proteins and human proteins, right? So our immune system may say um, other mammalian. Uh, 
the immune system may say, hey, that, that looks kind of okay, but something's wrong with it. I'm going to attack it. So that was an issue with um, insulin isolated from cattle and pigs for a very long time. But the first injection caused an allergic reaction. They quickly worked on refining it, getting it um, you know, a little more purified. And then the second dosage, toxins dosage, um, about 12 days later, was successful. And his condition improved dramatically. And diabetes, which is prior regarded as a fatal disease before 1922, um, could now be managed and treated. It was no longer a death sentence. So this is massive. Um, Professor John McLeod, who worked on this and helped with the isolation and the development of it, um, and both of them very swiftly, very quickly, received um, the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1923. Uh, uh, the medical student, Charles Best, who discovered insulin mutanting, did not get a Nobel Prize because he was a medical student. He wasn't the leader of the lab, but a testament to kind of how great um, they are. And uh, Canadians, you guys are pretty nice. Um, Dr. Banting shared the Nobel Prize with his medical student, Charles Best. So um, that was a little, that was heartwarming to see because I think sometimes in laboratory situations, a lot of the people doing the hard work, even the people that come up with the ideas are, are overlooked um, for the people who are, who are running and managing the lab. And, you know, it's, it's not to say that people are deserving of their Nobel Prizes, but sometimes people are overlooked. And I'd like to acknowledge that. Um, so this was a huge, huge breakthrough. And what happened from there? So we've got insulin, we can isolate it from animals. Diabetes is no longer a death sentence. Um, two major uh, pharmaceutical companies that you may have heard of stepped in to take over the reins. So Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk um, in the 30s, um, or sorry, yeah, in the 20s, were quickly producing insulin for worldwide distribution. Novo Nordisk was one of the first to work on long-acting insulin. So insulin forms these really neat, like, hexamers, and, and these hexamers are sometimes secreted or stored that way, and then will slowly fall apart and become more active. As a hexamer, it's not so active. Also, before the C peptide is cleaved, um, insulin is not so active. So um, insulin um, comes out as kind of like a pro-hormone, and then there's a cleavage event. Um, I'm going to show you some things on the screen. And uh, what you're left with are the A and the B peptides that are linked by something called disulfide bonds. Um, these disulfide bonds are represented by the S with a line drawn to an S. Um, and, you know, just our body had some really nice, complex ways that we evolved to, to manage blood sugar, right? So not all insulin is super active in all forms, and Nova Nordis took advantage of this and developed long-lasting insulin. Some of this can, you know, link them together with hypercarbon chains, so the insulin kind of falls apart and becomes active at slower rates. It's it's really interesting, neat protein biochemistry that was very quickly taken advantage of, and you know, pretty wild stuff at the time because we didn't have anything like genetic sequencing. We didn't even know what the basis of DNA was. Like we didn't have the word DNA yet. Um, we did not know the genetic code for cells. So Watson and Crick came on a lot later, but they were able to do all of this um, to try to help people with this disease that was prior a death sentence. And I think that is pretty amazing. 
Um, all right, so um, we're going to fast forward through the early 1900s pretty quickly, all the way up to present day. So, um, 1965-ish, genetic code was deciphered, Nobel Prize, Watson and Crick, and Rosalind Franklin. I'm going to mention her because she's often overlooked. Her X-ray crystallography was why they were able to solve that structure and get to mean them the Nobel Prize. Um, all right, so recombinant DNA methods, they kind of started in the early 1970s. Um, chemically synthesized DNA was shown to be active in cells for the first time in 1976. So it doesn't, you know, maybe it sounds a long time ago for some people, but I was born in the 70s. That doesn't sound too long ago for me. <laughs> but same year, Genentech was founded. And that, um, you know, that's the start of Genentech, which is now a massive biotechnology company. Um, it was founded out of this technology where, hey, we can get cells to make protein if we stick DNA code in them. They started to figure this out. Um, and for any of you who are listening uh, ECSF, hello. And, um, you know, this is why UCSF has the beautiful Genentech Hall, because um, some transfer of materials from laboratories there was not done properly. So if you are starting a biotechnology company, make sure you are talking to all of the um, Office of Materials Transfer people and being quite diligent with that. Um, but UCSF got a beautiful building out of it. Great. Genentech was founded. Uh, they partnered with Eli Lilly to start to make insulin in E. coli. So E. coli are rapidly growing bacteria. They can produce a lot of insulin in big fats very quickly. And uh, then you can purify the insulin from that. So that was how Genentech got its start and how Eli Lilly was starting to make um, cheaply producible um, insulin and remove the reliance on pancreases from slaughterhouse animals. And that's really a big step forward, right? In reducing cost and reducing contamination and reducing purification issues, etc. Um, insulin can also be produced in yeast, which um, you know have more mammalian-like signatures for their um, protein expression and, and post-translational modifications of those proteins. But in 1982, Humulin um, from Genentech and their partnership with Eli Lilly uh, was approved by the FDA. So boom, we have mass produce, massively producible insulin on the market, 1982. And um, I just, it's so, it's so exciting. Uh, all right, so let's zoom forward into modern times. If you thought that it would be really easy to produce insulin with bacteria in giant fats and you know ship it out very cheap, um, you would be right. But the cost of insulin is still a significant issue, especially in the United States relative to other countries. A vial of insulin in the United States will cost you about $100. In Canada, the same vial of insulin will cost you about $12. So this is a very serious issue still. Um, I personally know someone who's a type 1 diabetic who had to ration their medication. I worked with them before I worked with them. Um, she told me horror stories of this, and it significantly impacted her health, and it's very scary. Um, you know, if someone's between jobs, this, they have to choose between eating or rationing their diabetes insulin, and type 1, they can't get away with that. Um, 
and type two, a lot of people really do need the insulin constantly. Um, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act did cap the cost of insulin at $35 for a month's supply for about 4 million seniors. But this doesn't you know, impact the parents of children who have diabetes, who are newly diagnosed with diabetes, and everyone else who you know doesn't fall under that umbrella. So we still have a long way to go. So for type 2 diabetes, a lot of it can be managed um, orally with pills to start. Sometimes you may need to start taking insulin, though. Um, people with type 1 diabetes, they always need that insulin. Um, new diabetes diagnoses are coming out, too. So let me scroll through my notes and make sure I get those across. So type 2 is very metabolically complex, all right? So there are lots of reasons you could have insulin insensitivity, if you will, that inability to unlock the door, or, or you can unlock the door just fine, rather, you have enough um, insulin receptors, but not enough doors to get the sugar out of the bloodstream and in the cells. So that's a good thing to talk to an endocrinologist about. That is that is very, you know, metabolically complex. It's not the same. For there are different types of type 1 diabetes. So I just wanted to talk about that because there is a rare one, but worth knowing about if you're facing this disease. Um, all right, so type 1A, you have an autoimmune response. It is destroying the beta cells in your pancreatic islets, okay? I-S-L-E-T. You can have a slowly progressive form of autoimmune destruction of beta cells called latent autoimmune diabetes of adults, L-A-D-A. And this is kind of referred to as maybe like a type one and a half diabetes, okay? It shows up later in adulthood, but it's because of an autoimmune response. Now, the one that I thought was interesting, because even though I worked in type one B, okay? So this is, this is kind of interesting because there's no evidence in your blood that your immune system is attacking the beta cells. And you may have alternating cycles where you need insulin and you don't need insulin. And this form of disease is um, pretty unusual, very rare, but often diagnosed in people who are of African or Asian heritage. And this is um, historically an under community. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that because there may be a genetic component. All right. So cost, cost, cost. Cost is the issue with diabetes. Insulin pumps are incredibly helpful for maintaining something called time and range. This is the timing, the amount of time that your blood glucose is in a healthy range. So instead of picking your finger or a child's finger five, six times a day, trying to manage the right amount of insulin. Insulin can be a very dangerous hormone. Too much of it, your blood sugar drops too low, you can go into a coma. So this is tough to manage. And there are all sorts of really neat Technologies coming out where you have continuous glucose monitoring. Do you need insulin? Do you need to eat? Um, that kind of thing. And the problem, though, again, is that things like continuous blood glucose monitoring and pumps can be very expensive. So if you are listening to this and you're facing a new diagnosis or you know you're still managing a diagnosis, a recent one, um, I encourage you to go to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation website, JDRF. And they have a really nice write-up on whether or not you may be eligible to get a free insulin pump. And this program is through the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, 
excellent, um, nice, N-I-C-E, and you can get potentially a free Medtronic insulin pump. Um, so I think that's that's some really positive movement forward. Um, but still, you know, a lot of this technology took too much time to get developed. A lot of people are feeling like there's not enough attention on this. So um, there was a very tech savvy group of parents and people who are diabetes adjacent who started a hashtag in 2013. Hashtag we are not waiting. Um, why aren't we applying the modern day technologies that we have, you know, in our hands, in our phones to helping monitor this potentially still deadly disease if you get your blood sugar wrong. And so they started this hashtag, uh, we're not waiting, and they started building what they call closed loop systems or automated delivery systems that were kind of a do-it-yourself artificial pancreas. And I should also mention that Howard Book and Steve McCain, um, each of them have a daughter with type 1 diabetes, and they um, were big proponents of this and co-founded a nonprofit organization called Tide Pool that is working on releasing a do-it-yourself artificial pancreas in collaboration with Omnipod and Dexacom. All right. And then another way, you know, the medication is great. The treatments are great. You know, this is truly life-saving. If you manage it better, it will continue to improve. But, you know, I always, in my, my pursuits of ideas, I, I want real solutions. I want, you know, life-altering solutions. And transplantation of pancreatic islets is one of those ways I truly believe we can get there. So that is one of the reasons I'm so interested in organoids and organoid development. Um, because there is good evidence that transplantation can keep people insulin independent. Why don't we do it? Really, really difficult to isolate healthy islets um, from a donor pancreas. Um, the pancreas is chock full of enzymes, and it is one of the first organs to start to fall apart and self-digest, often you know, within minutes of death. Um, we start to have degradation. Also, because you need so many of them, um, and you often need at least two donor pancreases for a given transplant. Um, the transplant methods have been improved. They were first done by injecting the islets into the liver because the liver had ready access to um, a high amount of blood flow through capillaries. So the islets themselves could kind of lodge in there. They'd be supplied with blood and they could sample the blood sugar and release their insulin. Um, that works. It works. Um, it's not great, though, because you lose about 90% of the islets last time I was reading about it. Um, another more recent way people have been looking at doing this is by putting them in something called the omentum. This is kind of the connective tissue and fat around your organs, kind of like that, that tissue, you know, in, in your midsection. And that seems to work well also. Um, and perhaps a little bit better. The issue with this is that people, just like any organ or tissue transplant, um, run the risk of developing um, graft-versus-host or host-versus-graft disease um, and rejecting that, that transplant. So they'd have to be on immunosuppressive medication. Um, you know, a lot of the interesting work being done in the stem cell biology world and the organoid world, I'm really hoping to see them dovetail where people can get transplanted back their own cells, just differentiated into insulin-producing islets. Um, so 
there's a lot of research going on there, and I think that's very exciting. And uh, last but not least, um, I must make sure I mention openinsulin.org. Um, it was founded a few years ago. Um, looks like they took a, not a hiatus, but they're not updating their website as much during the pandemic. Um, but they are still active, and they are kind of um, people who are part of this biohacker movement. And their idea is that everyone should be able to produce their own insulin. And like I said, it's small protein, um, but you know there are going to be hurdles. Small protein, easy to produce. There are going to be hurdles with getting that through regulation because you want to make sure it is pure. You want to make sure people have exactly the right amount because it can be very dangerous if too much is injected. Um, but I really applaud their efforts for bringing low-cost, highly accessible, um, life-saving medication to people. So uh, they're based in three different places. Um, I think their mothership is in Oakland, California. And then they have laboratories in Baltimore, Maryland, and Paris, France. And um, they are working to develop, as I say, the first practical small-scale community-centered model for insulin production to make it readily accessible for all. All right. Um, so I hope that you've learned a bit about type 1 and type 2 diabetes um, all the way back from when it was first um, described in texts that we still have available today in ancient Egypt all the way up to kind of the interesting biohacking that is happening. Um, and as always, on Bench to Bedside, none of this would be possible without collaborative work between physicians and scientists um, moving forward the frontier of health and medicine. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. I'll see you later. All of my references are in the show notes. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you.